Hey guys, how you doing? Good, good. I um, I'm an English buff. I love English. I love literature, and so I thought we'd start off today with a quote by a British philosopher. His name is Edmund Burke. Anybody know who Edmund Burke is? You may recognize this quote. It has been quoted and misquoted repeatedly for the past 200 years. Those who do not know history are destined to repeat it. Has anybody ever heard something that sounds similar to that before? We usually use that as um, the precursor to going into, and this bad thing happened, and so we got to remember that so that we don't repeat it, and rightfully so. Um, There are many lessons we can learn without having to experience them ourselves. We can learn from other people's mistakes, from history, and if we're not cognizant of that, history unfortunately can repeat itself and we can end up in the same trouble that those before us have been in. But there's a converse truth that I want to talk a little bit about today, and it says this, those who do know history may be destined to repeat it. I like to run. You can't tell it, but <laughs> I really do. I ran cross country in high school, and um, I'm getting ready. Um, Jen uh, texted me about an hour and a half ago. I'm 61 days away from my fourth half marathon, which means it's about time to start exercising. <laughs> I'm starting to stress. <laughs> no, but it's, a, it's an amazing thing. How many runners are there? It seems like there are more and more runners. Yeah. Um, I ran my first half in 2008, then I had back surgery in 2011, and that kind of put me out for a couple years, and now I'm ready to go again. So we'll see how it goes. I'm not expecting to break any records. I'm just hoping to cross the finish line. Um, I know last week Pastor Matt talked about different types of runs that, uh, that people can do, and he and I have talked. He, he sees some of my um, little medals, and, you know, there's been more than one occasion where he said, man, you know, I'd love to run a half. And I say, you should. It'd be good for you. And he usually responds with, I just, I just don't want to run that far. I just don't think I could do it. <laughs> Yeah, just the positive attitude that's just running all through this church. I don't think I can do it. No, uh, but but you know, I sit there and I think. In two thousand seven, I was thinking the exact same thing, because I had never done it. But as I look back, and I remember training for that first half, and I remember um, it just felt like every week the long runs were killing me. And then I got to about the weekend where I was hitting like seven or eight mile runs, and I don't know what happened. Andrew, I don't know if this happened to you. Um, Dave, I don't know when you run. I got to a place where I hit like mile seven or eight, and I was like, I can do this. I'm actually feeling okay. And I'm two-thirds through a half marathon. This, I can do this. And this confidence starts to build up, And then I went and ran the race, and it was awesome, and I must admit that I was, I was spent by the end of the half marathon, but I did what everyone does. What do you always do when you come to the finish line? 
you raise your hands and you run across. You may have been on a tricycle for the last 13 miles, but that last tenth of a mile, you're like, you, you hear chariots of fire in your head, and you're doing it. I'm excited about this next half marathon. I'm excited because I have a history where I can remember doing this in the past. And so I have confidence that I didn't have before I had ever done it. Does that make sense? I have memories. Memories are powerful things. They can be our greatest allies, can't they? But memories can also be some of our biggest enemies, can't they? Well, we're finishing the series on called The One Thing, This One Thing, and Michelle started off talking about Mary and Martha, if you recall, and Matt continued last week with Paul's words, and today I'm going to take us, we're going old school, we're going to kick it old school and go Old Testament, and we're going to go to Psalm 27, and I'm going to read the whole thing. You can hold off on the slides for a second. I just want to read it in its entirety quickly to you, and then we'll jump in. Psalm 27, the Lord is my light and my salvation, whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life, of whom shall I be afraid? When evil men advance against me to devour my flesh, when my enemies and my foes attack me, they will stumble and fall. Though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear. The war break out against me, even then I will be confident. One thing I ask of the Lord, this is what I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to seek Him in His temple. For in the days of trouble He will keep me safe in His dwelling. He will hide me in the shelter of His tabernacle. And set me high on a rock. And then my head will be exalted above the enemies who surround me. And at his tabernacle, I will sacrifice with shouts of joy. I will sing and make music to the Lord. Hear my voice when I call, O Lord. Be merciful to me and answer me. My heart says of you, seek his face. Your face, Lord, I will seek. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You've been my helper. Do not reject me or forsake me, oh God, my Savior. Though my father and my mother forsake me, the Lord will receive me. Teach me your ways, O oh Lord. Lead me in a straight path because of my oppressors. Do not turn me over to the desires of my foes, for false witnesses rise up against me, breathing out violence. I'm still confident of this. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. 
I think what I want to do today is I just want to quickly go through this psalm. Um, I don't want to spend a lot of time in any one place, but I just want to paint this overall picture. I want to do broad strokes, broad strokes, excuse me. Let's look at the first verse. Psalm 27.1, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Now, as we start, I don't know if you heard it when I read it, but basically we have, um, well, Matt and I like to call David this bipolar writer. Um, Have you noticed how a lot of times it's like, God is awesome, God rocks, please help me, I'm in trouble, God is awesome, I'm about to die, and it's a lot of times like consecutively, one of my favorite passages, Psalm 139, oh Lord, you've searched me, you know me, you know when I rise, when I sit, and it gets all this stuff, and then about seven verses later, it's like, if only you would slay the wicked, it's like, all right. And, you know, he talks about my oppressors and my enemies, and they mock you, and this and that. And then it ends with, search me, O God, know my heart. And you're like, all right, David, you needed some medication, seriously. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But this passage, uh, commentators talk about, it is broken into two parts. I like to call it, it is the original sonnet. We have six beautiful verses of praise, six wonderful verses of prayer and petition, and then these two verses at the end that tie in the response and what God will do and what we will do. So we have verse one talking about, the Lord is my light and my salvation, of whom shall I fear? I love the play that David does, because when you're a kid, what are you afraid of? Don't say snakes. I'm thinking the dark. You're afraid of the dark. Who, who would be afraid of light? And, in, and so David's like, hey, God, you're my light. I have no reason to be afraid. When I'm with you, there is no darkness. You are my light. Whom shall I fear? You are the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Walter Brueggemann, uh, one of my favorite writers, talks about how this passage starts with this verse, with these two phrases, the Lord is, the Lord is, and basically what he's saying is, for the next 14 verses, we have one focus, and the one focus is Yahweh. The one focus is God. Everything is going to point back to him, and I'm letting you know it in the very first verse. It's like David is sending you the cliff notes in advance. You want to know what I'm going to talk about? God. You want to know what uh, I'm going to talk about four verses from now? God. So I love it because this is very easy to talk about because we have this very focused passage. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Of whom shall, whom shall I fear? Verse 2 says, When the wicked advanced against me to devour me, it is my enemies and my foes who will stumble and fall. Though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear. Though war break out against me, even then... I will be confident. I love, um, one translation of this verse says, though an enemy camp encamps me, I will not fear. I'm here, the enemy is encamped around me, but they don't realize that the God of angel armies has totally surrounded them. And 
as I was reading this, I couldn't help but wonder if these might be words that Elisha was thinking about in 1 Kings. Now, David penned these words, and 200 years later, we had Elisha. And if you don't know the story, it's a wonderful story. Um, the Arameans are trying to come against Israel, and they keep setting traps. And God tells Elisha, go tell the king, don't do this because it's a trap. And so every time they set this trap, the Israel army avoids it because God is on their side, and he is protecting them and telling them what to do and what not to do. So finally, the king says, all right, if the problem is Elisha, let's get rid of Elisha. So he sends an entire army. The Bible says horses, chariots, soldiers, an entire army descending on the city of Dotham to take care of one prophet. And Elisha's servant goes out early in the morning, and you can see, you know, you can see it playing out in your mind. He's like, he sees a vast army out there, and he knows um, we're in trouble. And Elisha says, God, open my servant's eyes that he may truly see. And the Bible talks about how all of a sudden he saw an army of God's angels totally surrounding the enemy. And I have no way to, to prove this, but I'm the kind of guy that likes to wonder. I wonder if Elisha when that situation happened and he walked out and he saw the Aramean army, if he remembered the words of David and he thought, if my God can be that for David, surely he can be that for me. And then my mind starts thinking, I wonder why David wrote this. I wonder if while he was penning this, he was thinking of Gideon. You remember the story of Gideon? where the Midianites are going against him, and 32,000 Israel, uh, Israeli army men come together, and God says, I want you to send home everyone that's afraid. And so Gideon says, hey, if you're scared, go home. God's going to take care of us. Out of 32,000, 22,000 men left. Grown soldiers, trained to fight, scared, left. So we're down to 10,000 against an entire army, and God says, eh, that's still too many. What I want you to do is, and he gives them another test, and he weeds down 10,000 to 300 people. And so 300 soldiers go against the army of Midian with a trumpet, a torch, and a pitcher. And the Bible says they surrounded them, they blew the horns, they cracked the vases, the torches lit up, they the Midianites saw they were surrounded and God took care of them and said panic ensued, their minds were blurred and they actually fought each other and God's people stood around. And I wonder if David was thinking if, if God could do something like that for Gideon, surely he could do something like that for me. You ever think that way? I mean, if God could do something for them, surely he can provide for me. And then we get to verse 4, the, the primary text for the day, the one thing. One thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord 
and to seek him in his temple. Now, to dwell in the house of the Lord was not necessarily his responsibility. And he's not actually saying, I would like to, you know, have a side room in the temple. What he is saying is, I want to be so close to God, I want to constantly live in God's presence. When I am not thinking of him, when I am not thinking of his will, when I am not focused on God, life doesn't make sense. God, let me live in your presence. Uh, Tyndale Commentary said this, and I love this quote. I love this quote. (laughs) Note the singleness of purpose, this one thing. The best answer to, to distracting fears and the priorities within that purpose is to behold and to inquire. A preoccupation with God's person and his will. It is the the essence of worship, indeed, of discipleship. So what David is saying is, God, I want to know you. If I don't know you, all of this is nothing. It's It's like the contrast to Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes, I get money, I get fame, I get wealth, and it's all nothing. It's all rubbish. Life is futile, so eat, drink, and be merry, because tomorrow we die. And David is saying, I'm the king, I have the money, I have the wealth, I have the stuff, but it is all nothing if I don't have your presence. You alone do I seek. I would gladly give it all up to know you and to know your will. This is where my heart is. I want to know you. Echoes of Paul, I want to know Christ. Christ crucified and the power of the resurrection. This is the essence of worship, people. And then we go on in verse 6, um, With David saying, you know, there will be shouts of joy. I will sing and make music to the Lord. I love that. You guys did a great job today. Um, Kudos. (laughs) That sounds weird. Um, I sensed God's presence. As we were singing songs, as we were lifting up his name, it didn't feel like it was about what we were doing or what they were doing. It really felt like we were coming together and we were saying, God, it's all about you. I lift my voice in praise. I lift my talents and I give it to you. I feel like we kind of had a glimpse of the heart of David's thoughts this morning, and I love it. But then we have David being David, and we turn to this craziness, God, I need you, I seek your face. Verses 7 through 9, do we have that? Yeah, let's look at that. Hear my voice when I call, Lord. Be merciful to me and answer me. My heart says to you, seek his face. Your face, Lord, will I seek. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn. Give me one second. (laughs) I'm terribly sorry. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You've been my helper. Do not reject me or forsake me, God my Savior. My mind goes to Exodus 33. We have Moses up in the mountain. And Moses says, 
God, I want to see your face. And in Exodus 33, basically summarizing, God says, you can't see my face because I am so holy. Were you to do that, you would die. So instead, I will cover you, I will pass, and I will say my name, Yahweh, Yahweh, and you can see my goodness as I pass by. See, in the Jewish mindset, to look on the face of God was certain death. And so it amazes me. We lose it in our Western Hemisphere, Americanized vision. And we say, yeah, that's cool. I want to see God's face. That's a good line. What David is saying is, I want to know you, God, to the point that I am willing to sacrifice my life if that's what it takes. I cannot live out of your presence. I need to see your face. He asks three times, let me see your face. Let me see your face. God, let me see your face. Then he goes into uh, what would be comparable to um, Proverbs. Um, He goes into this wisdom literature in verses 10, and and he talks about, God, I want to see your face. Even my mom and my dad, if they disown me, you never will. And a few years later, the book of Proverbs will be written, which is kind of the essence of Jewish wisdom literature, at least uh, in my mind it is. And all through Proverbs, we hear, train up a child in the way they should go. This is the parent's responsibility. As a parent, you do this, and your children will do this, and God will provide this. And David is saying, no, no, no. God, you are my father. I want to know you. I want to know your will. God, even if my mom and dad disown me, you are my daddy. Teach me your ways. Then we get to verse 13 and 14 which is the end. It's, the, um, it's what some people would call the oracle, the response, the, the prophet's voice speaking into David, saying, remain confident. I remain confident in this. I will see the goodness of the Lord. Can you hear the Exodus passage? I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord be strong, take heart, wait for the Lord. And you have these same words that are spoken to Joshua when Joshua takes over. Be strong, be courageous, trust in the Lord. And we have David being told this, wait for the Lord, be strong, take heart, wait for the Lord. So we've got this praise and this need, this trust and this cry of desperation taking place all throughout Psalm 27. One commentary said this, the interplay of images between the song of confidence and the lament testifies to the psalm's organic unity. But more importantly, it shows how intrinsically how intricately trust and need are interwoven. 
the voice of neediness, speaking urgent pleas for help, arises from trust, which transforms anxiety to prayer. So let me ask you today, if you were writing Psalm 27, which part would you heavily lean on? Maybe right now you're in a place where I trust in God. He's been so faithful. Maybe you're in a place where you say, I'm anxious. God, I need you. If you don't come through for me, I'm lost. And the beauty in the text is that there is room for both. Amen? Because... When we come to God with our needs, we are ultimately displaying trust, which turns our anxiety into prayer because all of a sudden we are less worried and more focused on God will provide. I may not know how, but God will provide. Earlier we sang a song, here I raise my Ebenezer. And we often sing songs that don't make sense to us now because we don't use the same language. So just to give you a glimpse into what that is. Ebenezer means the Lord is my help. And so what, what they would do is, in the Old Testament, when God did something miraculous... And they said, we need to remember this. They would erect an Ebenezer. They would put these stones on top of one another. So that anytime anybody said, hey, what are these stones for? They could say, I remember a time. This was happening and God stepped in. Their names are Roger and Celeste. I, uh, I went to church with them. We moved to Nashville in the 82. They were at the church that my dad was working at. And we had just finished a faith promise drive. And they had made their faith, plum, faith promise pledge. And a month, month and a half went by. And they said they felt God talking to them, saying... Have you really given everything I want you to give? See, they, they had their money. They had made a pledge. They'd also been saving for over a decade. They had been unable to have children. And they had saved $3,000 for an adoption. Wasn't enough, but it was a pretty good start. And God said, what about that? Do you trust me enough to give your $3,000? I remember, I didn't, I, don't, I didn't understand the significance at the time, but I remember when Roger and Celeste got up before the church and they said, we don't know why, but we feel like God's telling us to give this money. And it means that it's going to be a longer time before we have children. But we do it because God told us to, and he's faithful, and he will provide. 
And it was about a month later that Roger called the pastor of the church and said, are you sitting down? Yeah, I'm sitting down. We just found out, even though the doctor said there was no way Celeste could get pregnant, guess what? She's pregnant. I cannot tell you the celebration that happened. I can't explain it. That Sunday, we all shared in this moment, this Ebenezer moment in the life of this couple, because we saw them step out in faith, and then we saw God respond. It was about a month later, Roger called the pastor again, and he said, Pastor, are you sitting down? Yeah, I'm sitting down. Just got back from the doctor. They told us we're having triplets. <laughs> we gave God $3,000. <laughs> Me and my humanist, I'm thinking, thank goodness they didn't give them $10,000. <laughs> they said, God took something that was never supposed to happen and now we have three kids on the way. The story goes on a few months later, as, as with pregnancies with multiple children, there started to be some complications, and she was actually put in the hospital for the last two months. And the doctors told her their goal was that when she leaves the hospital, she has at least one healthy baby. Because of her problems, because of the situation, they did not have a lot of hope for all three but they were pretty sure that they would at least have one kid. And Celeste talks about how she was in her hospital bed, and she said, God, that just doesn't make sense to me. Why? I mean, what's going on? And God said, don't worry. You're going to have all three kids, and they're going to be healthy. And I will even tell you it's going to be on September 3rd. Well, a couple days later... The doctors come in, they said, you know what, we feel like we're far enough along, we feel like we can do this now. So, we're going to schedule your C-section for September 4th. And Celeste said, okay, that sounds good. But in the back of her mind, she's thinking, that doesn't sound right. Something's up. Well, it was about Thursday before, and the doctor came back in and said, you know what, it's the weirdest thing. We've had so many nurses that have said, we want to be here for this, this triplet surgery. They're going to need nurses at each incubator. At each, you know, we're going to need a ton of nurses. They want to come in on their day off and help deliver these triplets. But the problem is, they only get off on the third. That's when the majority of them are off. So would you be okay if we moved up the birth to the third? Ebenezer. And then just, you guys are going to think I'm lying, but I promise this is true. Roger talks about he pulled into Vanderbilt Hospital, parked his car, looked down at his odometer, said 33,333 miles. <laughs> Crazy. Our church gained strength through their journey, their obedience, their willingness to share their Ebenezer. I remember when Jen and I were moving to New York. It was 2003. 
we felt called to help a church plant on the north shore of Long Island. The only problem is, we didn't have a lot of money. We were young, we had one car, we both worked at Treveca, so that was fine, but we, we knew if we're going to go to New York, there are some serious things we need to think about. We bought a house 18 months ago. Nobody makes money on a house when you've had it that short a time. We only have one car. We'd have to have two. We'd have to have good-paying jobs because New York is so expensive. Everything there was almost triple what it was in Nashville. So we started praying, and we said, God, we believe you want us there. We cannot get there on our own. And we just said, God's going to provide. God's going to take care of it. About two weeks later, our friends, uh, Jeremy and Michelle, called. And they said, you know what? We know you need to be in New York. And we've been thinking about getting a new car. And instead of trading in, we feel like God is telling you that we need to give you our Corolla. I mean, these are like 26-year-olds. I mean, this, is, this isn't like the millionaire that I've got six to spare. This was their car. And we we're like, no, we can't do that. No, no, no. And they're like, God is telling us to do this. Take the car. And so I actually still drive it. The silver 96 Corolla. It's our miracle car. We call it that. It's a miracle it's still running, but it's, a, it's, <laughs> it's our miracle car. And every time I get in it, and every time I try to open the broken door, I remember, this is my miracle car. I'm going to drive this thing until it dies. And every time I get in it, I try to remember, God is faithful. There was a time when we could not afford this, and God provided. Oh, and by the way, we were going to put our house on the market on a Saturday, and our neighbor, who doesn't go to church, happened to go to a funeral and said, hey, I was at a funeral the other day, and I know a couple that wants to buy a house, and they want it in our neighborhood. Could they come and take a look? Sure. Could they come Wednesday? Yeah, that's great. I mean, we're putting it on the market on Saturday. If they want to take a look beforehand, that's perfect. We come to find out it was a funeral at a Nazarene church, and the people that were wanting it were youth pastors that were finishing up at Treveca University, where we were working. We knew them. They come over and we're like, you're the ones looking? <laughs> and they're like, you're the ones selling? So they looked through the house and they said, we love it. Took about 10 minutes. Said, how much do you need? We need this. We're not trying to make money. We just feel like we're supposed to be in New York. That's a fair price. Done. We sold our house before I even had a chance to buy a for sale by owner sign. What a great God. And there are times... When I have had to look back and say, God, I need your provision today, and I know that you're able because you did this for me back then. Nick and I meet on the weekends to talk through slides and videos and what we want to do, and two weekends ago, we met Mr. Taylor. Mr. Taylor um, was just getting his car done um, down the street. Happened to go into Starbucks, started talking to Nick. Nick was talking about Sophia and some of the issues that they're having with her. And Mr. Taylor comes over and said, hey, I just want you to know I'm praying for you, and I'm going through something similar. It's not with a baby, 
But my wife of 30 years was recently diagnosed with MS, and it has hit her quickly, and she now won't leave the house, and she's just started having the first signs of what doctors say is going to be a pretty big case of dementia very quickly. And we talked, and we prayed, and Nick said something that stuck in my mind, and I've thought about it a lot since then. 30 years of marriage, my wife doesn't even recognize me half the time. I don't know how to care for her. Nick looked at me and said, sir, you wear your wedding ring well. And I thought, God, that's what I want to be. I want to have that kind of commitment to my wife. And there probably, it's only been a couple weeks, but there probably has not been a day that's gone by that I haven't thought of Mr. Taylor and prayed for him and said, God, thank you for a man that is willing to stick around in the hard times. And when he said, till death do us part, those weren't just words. And may I be that kind of person. You know, Ebenezer after Ebenezer, these are you know, they're wonderful. They don't, they're not always happy, though. Sarah was my friend's mom. She, well, she was a saint when she lived, and she was a saint when she died. I remember when she had her heart attack, um, and I went to the hospital. I have no idea why God has made me this way, but if you talk about stubbing your toe, I will pass out. (laughs) But if you tell me you need me to visit you in the hospital, for some reason, I'm there, and I'm on. And, And God has given me the ability to be there in those types of situations. I don't know why. So we're in with Sarah, and the family's gathered around. They asked me to come in. They said, she loved hearing you sing. I know she can't hear you. She's unconscious. They're thinking about taking her off the ventilator soon. Would you just sing to her? And I remember singing it as well with my soul. And I remember her vital signs begin to rise as we would sing. And the kids would join in, and the vital signs would go up. And it's almost as if she was saying, yes, God, it is well with my soul. And we finished singing and we prayed, and she was gone a very short time afterwards. But I remember that moment that has become an Ebenezer in my life, because I want to live and die in the presence of God, and I want to always be able to say, God, it is well, it is well, whatever my lot, you've taught me to say, It is well. In your bulletin, you have a purple sticky. We've been talking about the one thing. The one thing for today is simple. Remember. 
The one thing I ask is to know you, to know your will, to remember you moving in my life and on my behalf. And the thing is, there are times when God has moved in your life. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you to do one of two things. On your sticky, maybe you have an Ebenezer moment. Maybe you have a time when you say, there is no other explanation other than God. I want you to write it down. You don't need to write a paragraph. It may just be, you remember your brother Jim. Jim. Or healed from cancer. Or baby wasn't supposed to live and is now 23 and married. Or was unemployed for nine months and never missed a meal and never missed a payment. There are Ebenezer moments in your lives where you say, God has been so faithful, I want to remember and I choose to remember. There are others of you that are more like Psalm 7 through 12. And you say, I'm in the heat of it. I feel like my world is crashing apart. Layoffs are on the horizon. Uh, my health is bad. Um, my marriage is shaky, whatever it is, and you say, I need prayer, which is what the second part of this psalm was. I want you to write it down. We, we don't want your names. We don't want, we just want job. Hurting, lone, I'm lonely. Because the truth is, we are called to be communal. Even back when you think about Passover, they would gather their families together and they would say, this is a time when God did something for us. And they would draw faith. When, when those had faith, they would give it. When those did not have faith, they would receive it. Because faith and hope go hand in hand. And so here's what I'm hoping you'll do. I'm hoping you'll write something down. And as Jamie comes and is playing... We're going to go back to come thou fount of every blessing. Here I raise my Ebenezer. The greatest Ebenezer I can think of happened at a table with some bread and some wine, a couple of disciples, and our Savior. This truly is our Ebenezer. We are called to remember. We are invited to share in this blessing. And so, Pastor Matt and Pastor Michelle are going to come prepare the elements, and we have servers that are going to serve you. But here's what I'd love. Whether it's Ebenezer of faith or Ebenezer of need, as you feel God leading you, I want you to come. In faith, place it at this simple Ebenezer and then receive the elements. And as you do, I want you to take a sticky that simply says, remember. And I want you to put it in a place where you will do exactly that through the coming days and the coming weeks. And you will start to develop the habit of noticing God moving on your behalf. And you will start to remember, hey, 
I have faith because I remember when I was a kid and this happened. I know God's going to provide for us in our financial needs now because I remember when mom and dad would sit at the table and there wasn't enough money at the end of the month and the first thing they would do is go to their knees and somehow God provided. I want you to start remembering your story. Remember those times when God's been faithful to you. So as you pray, as you write down, I'm going to invite you to come, place whatever you want at the Ebenezer, and then pick up the remembrance. Pastor Matt and Michelle are going to talk about the elements. Grace and peace to you.